this is Stephen Batchelor, 14th of October 2010, Lecture 1 in Teacher's Retreat in Springbrook, Australia. What I want to do this morning is to, is to try and sketch what it is that I'm trying to do, trying to give us a framework for this kind of approach to uh, the Dhamma. And I can think of a number of uh, ways I could describe this. One would be um, unlearning Buddhism. And again, it, it's, it might sound like that's a relatively easy thing to do. Some of you are pro- probably familiar with a book called Unlearning Meditation. Um, it's a similar notion. But unlearning something is not just a question of finding the off switch or the delete button, and then it's all gone. What I found for myself, and perhaps you have found this too, is that the way in which one is initially taught the Dharma, and I think this is very true if one starts at a a young, impressionable age, as I did, some of these ideas and views and uh, core ideas uh, get embedded in one's mind, in one's psyche, perhaps even deeper than that, um, in a way that's quite difficult to subsequently dislodge. The, an example of this would be the way in which the Buddha has been presented to us by Buddhist tradition. Now, I found in my recent work of trying to revisit the Buddha's life and trying to reconstruct it in terms of more primary canonical material even though I knew intellectually that the Buddha was not a prince, for example, nonetheless, I found it very difficult to really get out of that idea. And I think the same is true also for a lot of Buddhist ideas that have been passed down through tradition. They've been passed down to us by teachers whom we greatly admire, for good reason men usually of great integrity and wisdom and what we have been told in all sincerity we take on board and very often that becomes rather embedded and it subsequently becomes quite difficult to look at this material differently when we get onto the four noble truths that I want to spend quite a bit of time on we're probably all programmed to believe that craving is the cause of suffering. I think there's quite considerable evidence that that is not actually what the text is saying. But to get out of that picture is difficult. Another way we might look at this um, process is, is that of deconstructing Buddhism. And perhaps a metaphor that is helpful here is the metaphor of thinking 
of Buddhism as like a multi-storied edifice. A great big complicated building like some of these old castles we have in Europe. Or a good example also would be the meditation center called Gaia House. <laughs> Gaia House, you have, uh, you have parts of it which go back to the Elizabethan period. You have some beautiful flagstones and the kitchen area is Elizabethan. And then there's some Georgian additions. And then there's some Victorian embellishments. And then in the 1950s, a whole bunch of modern, rather functional wings were added on. I think Buddhism is a bit like that. That what we encounter unavoidably are traditions that have been formed over centuries. They've been built on earlier traditions which are sometimes uh, forgotten or sometimes buried or invisible. What we inevitably encounter is the outer surface the explicit form of those traditions, which then very often claim authority in saying, this is Buddhism. This is the Dhamma. In doing so, though, there's a great deal that's being unacknowledged and unsaid. And perhaps even from the teacher's point of view, um, something of which there's little awareness. One of the common um, uh, tropes, as it were, or, or statements that you often find in a Buddhist teaching, in a Buddhist teaching, is that the teacher will say, the Buddha said that. And um, again, if that is given to you with authority, with, you have great respect for the teacher, you have no reason to question that. But I found it more and more useful to say, where, when did the Buddha say that? And I've noticed also in, in many popular English language books on Buddhism, you'll find this expression being used fairly, fairly generally and uncritically, the Buddha said that. I think we have to be careful there. I think we have to um, not just take that at face value. And what this means is, um, again, uh, dis dismantling the superstructure of the edifice of, say, Zen Buddhism or Tibetan Buddhism or Theravada Buddhism and uh, finding out on what basis those traditions, those orthodoxies uh, emerged. Uh, another uh, frequently made claim is... Um, uh, our lineage of teachers goes back to Siddhartha Gautama or Shakyamuni Buddha. But again, if we utilize uh, historical critical methods, which is part of our tradition, our culture in the West, very few of these lineages stand up to much scrutiny at all. Uh, and this has been done. I mean, they've taken Zen lineages and, and actually checked historically whether there's any evidence for some of these earlier teachers. Uh, and very often there isn't, or there are enormous time lags between one teacher and the next. So we have to be careful, I think, um, not, to take for, not to take on trust simply what we are told 
um, by a person who is, uh, embodies a certain authority. Now, I'm not suggesting here that uh, traditional Buddhist teachers are deliberately mis, uh, uh, misleading us or, or telling a fib. Usually, and I would say possibly in all cases, this is done in entirely good faith. But one of the um, elements that I think will be crucial in the forming of a Dhamma that um, addresses, uh, or let's say, is formed by modernity, or let's say Buddhism's encounter with modernity, is that we're going to apply a much more rigorous historical analysis to what is actually being said and what is being claimed to be true. I think this is a good thing. And um, I think it's... Um, I've, I've always been rather uh, disappointed in a way that traditional Asian forms of Buddhism have a very, um, a very weak sense of the historicity of their traditions. Uh, even to the point of introducing magical elements in order to explain, for example, how Mahayana Buddhism appeared in the world. The Mahayana Buddhists are aware that Mahayana teachings did not really occur on this earth until four or five hundred years after the Buddha. But the way that it's used the way they use to explain that is by saying, well, these teachings were, were preserved by nagas underwater or by dakinis in the sky or they were hidden in caves and then recovered some hundreds of years later. Um, I think all of these kinds of accounts will strike many of us as being um, somewhat superstitious um, and not really very credible in terms of how we currently understand the way the world works. So we're confronted um, with a tradition that is making a lot of truth claims, but if we scratch the surface and look at what those truth claims rest upon, we may be disappointed to find that uh, those foundations are not as solid as the representatives of tradition would like to believe. So if we go back to the metaphor of the, the multi-storied edifice of Buddhism, what this would imply in this approach is respectfully dismantling the edifice to try to get closer to what lies on the ground floor, on what the edifice is built. And I don't think it's at all controversial and in fact all Buddhist traditions would agree to this, is that the, uh, the whole edifice is built upon the teachings of a man called Siddhartha Gautama, who lived in the 5th century BC, and who set the wheel of Dharma turning in Isipatthana, now called Saranat. That is the basis. And that, or even beneath that, lies the experience of what we call awakening. The Buddha's awakening being as it were, the starting point without which the, the conditio sine qua non, the indispensable condition for Buddhism happening. 
So that's what I want to go back to. I don't want to, um, as it were, be seen to, to trash everything that's emerged since. Because what I've found is that each tradition that comes down to us today very often has served to illuminate what the Buddha taught in those early times, but very often uh, has also um, confused it. I don't think it's a, a black and white issue. I don't think just because a teaching comes later, it's somehow less authentic. No, I'm not saying that at all. What is, I think, the task or the challenge is by becoming clearer about what is there, or at least what we can ascertain to be on the ground floor, or maybe even in the basement. What elements um, in later tradition have grown out of that core insight, and what elements have, as it were, been cultural adaptations that may, in some respects, have slipped into a view that is not so consistent or so reconcilable with the core uh, insight of the Buddha. Now, of course, this is all highly contentious, and I'm sure much of our discussion will... Um, involve uh, uh, argumentation around this. Uh, but let's leave that for the discussion. Now going back to uh, history, um, I believe, and this would be supported by um, pretty much any contemporary Buddhist scholar, that um, the closest we're ever going to get to what the historical Buddha Siddhartha Gautama said is found in two bodies of uh, textual materials. Um, the materials recorded in the Pali language, which we call the Pali Canon, and um, a Chinese translation of a Sanskrit version of those early texts, which are called in Chinese, the Agama, the Agama literature. Now, the Agamas um, were translated in about the 4th century AD from um, a, a Sanskrit, and by that we mean a, a Buddhist hybrid Sanskrit, not classical Sanskrit, version of the early canon that was preserved in northeast India more around the area where the Buddha taught, around Nalanda and these places. Whereas the Pali materials were preserved um, in um, Ceylon, Sri Lanka. Now, this is, I think, an important um, uh, point because when we compare, and again, I haven't done it since I don't know Chinese, and in fact, this is still a work in progress among scholars, when we compare the Pali uh, suttas or discourses with the suttas that are usually under the same name and in more or less the same sequence in the Chinese Agama, we find an extraordinary um, uh, equivalence. They're not word for word identical, but they're near enough to be quite confident that this is the same basic data that is uh, underpinning these two 
bodies of textual material. Um, I think one of the strongest uh, evidence for the, um, uh, the authenticity of the early canon lies in the fact that we have these two versions which are broadly equivalent. Now what is, I think, striking is that these two versions were preserved um, about a thousand miles apart geographically. The two groups of monks who preserved them had not had any contact with each other for about 400, 500 years. And the tradition had been preserved for the most part orally, which gives strong um, credibility um, to the reliability of oral tradition. Again, it's, 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 it's a common complaint that I get a lot from people on courses is that, but I thought the Buddha's teaching wasn't written down until three or four hundred years after his life. Surely it must have been completely changed and transformed in that time. And we think rather superficially of you know, Chinese whispers. If I whisper something to Victor, by the time it gets to Gendu and it will uh, Jamba, it will be um, a different story altogether. Uh, I think that's a very, trivi tri a very trivial um, objection, and I think also there is um, uh, a kind of prejudice we have of people who've grown up in a literary culture, a written culture, where we just don't trust orality. But that, I think, is a very disrespectful way to regard um, those early communities. We have to remember that in oral traditions, prior to the, um, the written, reliable written form, the people in those times were just as concerned as we are, or would be now, to preserve their tradition. Now, this was very, very important for them. And so they would have given great um, weight to the accuracy of uh, the way in which the texts were repeated over time. And they put in certain safeguards. We know that in the Pali tradition at least, uh, different groups of monks were, uh, as it were, given the task of preserving different bits of the canon. They were called barnacas, reciters. Whether this was one particular person or, or a group of monks, um, uh, some of them would be called the marjama barnacas, the, the reciters of the middle length discourses and so on. Uh, the fact that this was also done communally, recited together, and when you read the Pali texts, you, you get a very strong flavor of oral recitation. The repeated, the repeated passages, the, the stock phrases. And that too, I think, is a guarantor against um, uh, one monk singing out of key or getting a word wrong. That person would then be corrected. But the fact that these two bodies of materials separated geographically and historically by such wide margins um, subsequently produce a body of material that's almost identical is a, a strong claim for the tradition not having changed as much as we might expect an oral tradition to have done so. And this is not exclusive to Buddhism. Um, recently one of Richard Gombrich's students 
um, was doing research into the Brahmanic, uh, the Vedic uh, um, oral traditions. And he, um, and some, and remember that the Vedas and the Upanishads were also not written down. And they go back way, way further than the Buddha. Even today, there are Brahmin priests in different parts of India who perform the same rituals with the same recitations and the same prayers and the same hymns and so on, uh, which are only preserved orally. And when this student of Gombrich's went to India to do field research, he went to different places all over India and he recorded what these different Brahmin priests were reciting. And again, it was pretty much identical. So this gives us, I think, a confidence that we do have access to a very early stratum of doctrines and teachings that, go very, that, that, that have a high likelihood, we cannot say certainty, of representing what it was that the Buddha taught. But we also know through the analysis of the, the, the Pali Canon, I, I'm leaving the Agamas out because I don't know enough about them, but certainly within the Pali Canon, we can detect uh, distinct layers um, of, um, of different styles of language. There are earlier texts that are um, written in a different style, in a different form to other texts which are also in the canon. The text that is normally considered to be the most ancient of all the Pali texts is called the Sutta Nipata, uh, S-U-T-T-A P-I Pitaka, no, Sutta Nipata, N-I-P-A-T-A. I can give you a reading list of all of these things. If it's not, it's not included in here, but I've got it separately. The Sutta Nipata is the only um, body of Pali texts where you find it quoted in other suttas, where a monk will say to the Buddha, "You said da 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 da. What does that mean?" And pretty much invariably, what the monk will quote is a passage from the Sutta Nipata. So also on internal evidence within the canon, we can recognize that there are some texts that predate others. Now this is not surprising, given the fact that the Buddha taught for 45 years. And I have my own sense, I don't know how other scholars would agree with this, is that the Sutta Nipata probably represents the teachings he gave within the first five or ten years after the awakening. Probably up to the period before the Buddhist community became centered at the Jetta's Grove, Anattapindaka's garden in Shravasti. Or Sa- I'm going to use the Pali words, Savati. Uh, it took about 12 or 15 years before the Buddha had a really... Um, Paka base and this is the Jetta's Grove and from the period of the acquisition of Jetta's Grove the Buddha spends I think about 20, almost 25 reigns um, uninterruptedly every year he went back there and I think it's probably during this period and again this is hypothesis the texts don't actually say it 
But it seems likely that it was during this period that they, the Buddhist Sangha, under the Buddha's direction, under the direction of Sariputta, uh, with Ananda as the kind of memorizer, began to collate the material into more organized forms. Scholars believe that perhaps the earliest of these collated forms is called the Sangyutta Nikaya, the connected discourses, in which the uh, suttas are organized according to connected themes. It's also felt that the Diga Nikaya might represent a later uh, uh, period uh, or might represent a different style of te teaching. But I'm not going to get into all of this. The point is that even within the Pali Canon itself, within the suttas, uh, there are clearly uh, different uh, layers, tem tem temporal layers. We also have a problem uh, in the Pali suttas in that there are, there are a number of internal contradictions. Uh, passages where the Buddha is described in one way and passages where he's described in a very different way. I'm particularly thinking here of a couple of suttas in which the Buddha is described quite explicitly as bearing the 32 major marks of a great man, which means a ushnisha, a fleshly lump on top of the head, um, and all other kind of strange physical attributes. And yet there are other suttas um, which the Buddha is physically described as looking like anybody else which I think has to be the case, frankly. I don't believe that the Buddha was such a phys physiological freak. But there are suttas where a Brahmin hears that there's a Buddha around, and according to Brahmanic tradition of that period, a Buddha would have, could be verified as having these 32 major marks. So the Brahmin goes to the Buddha and, um, are, and checks the Buddha's body out. You know, it says one, two, three, four, five. And is able to find 30, but not 32. And the two that he can't <coughs> verify are that the Buddha has a tongue that can touch his ears. And the Buddha's penis is retracted in his pelvis like that of a horse. Which, is, again, we love, you see. But the, the, the interesting thing is most Buddhists through history honestly believe the Buddha did look like that. This is not um, uh, just some weird quirky bit of myth. This is, and all the Buddha images, likewise, are representing not a human being, but this, this great man, this Mahapurusha, the great person with all these attributes. Now, but you find that description in the early canon. So it's not a later edition. It's already there but it contradicts other passages where the Buddha is quite clearly described as looking just like anybody else, not looking remarkable at all. So you have to deal with these kinds of problems. You have to deal doctrinally with passages where the Buddha speaks quite explicitly of past and future lives, how your actions determine what you'll be, how you'll be reborn. There's many, many passages like that. Um, passages also where he describes the process of, a, of, of becoming an arhant, a liberated saint, in terms of how many lifetimes you have to go. And then you have other passages, 
uh, where the Buddha says, uh, when asked about whether there is life after death or not, he simply says, that's irrelevant. That's absolutely irrelevant. It doesn't matter. It's not my concern. I'm not going to say anything about it. And then we have passages where he does. So there's all these kinds of problems in, as it were, trying to get down to the ground floor and find out what's going on. Now, one um, way of, <clears throat> of shedding some light on this problem is to bear in mind that the Buddha's teaching is by and large dialogical. In other words, it occurs in the context of specific occasions. In this sense, the Buddha is very similar to Socrates. Socrates didn't write anything down. Socrates did not appear to have a kind of uh, fully-fledged, highly worked out theory or philosophy that he imposed to a body of students in the same way in every single occasion. And I think the Buddha's the same. Uh, the Buddha responds to people's questions, dilemmas, and does so in a way that is specific to the speaker and the speaker's understanding and the speaker's um, culture, maybe level of learning, whether they're a learned Brahminic monk or whether they are a, an uneducated lay person. He'll respond in different ways. So that, I think, helps give us one key to um, unravelling some of these apparent contradictions within the texts. But I do think it points to something quite important. Namely that the Dhamma it was not presented as a consistent um, theory about the nature of life and reality. Um, as a kind of philosophy. But rather the Dhamma is presented as a therapy. It's presented as a means whereby to um, work and respond to the reality of suffering within one's own and within the wider experience of others. In other words, of, of coming to terms with life itself. And as any therapeutic process um, will entail, different treatments will be given to uh, resolve different maladies. Um, as I'm sure you're all familiar, the Buddha, in fact, presents himself quite self-consciously as a, a physician, as a doctor. He considers his Dharma to be a medicine, a kind of treatment. And he considers the Sangha to be a kind of nursing staff, people who support uh, the sick person in their recovery and cure. So there's a very strong uh, therapeutic uh, emphasis. The Buddha, I think, also is eminently pragmatic. In other words, he's concerned with what we do that may make a real difference in the quality of our life rather than presenting a set of doctrines and dogmas that we are expected either to believe or not believe. Now, just in the same way that um, Socrates was, um, was followed by Plato, uh, the Buddha was followed by the Abhidharma. 
in other words, an attempt to systematize uh, what was originally presented as a therapeutic pragmatic tool and to turn it into a more um, uh, rigorous and hopefully internally consistent and coherent body of ideas. And so from Socrates we get Platonism, from the Buddha we get Buddhism basically. So in, coming, in going back to the early sources, trying to uncover the ground floor, it's not a question that we're going to arrive at a set of ideas and a set of doctrines which we can reliably see as correct, but rather we're going to expose a methodology that might be quite different to how Buddhism is taught uh, today. A methodology that's far more specific to the needs of an individual person, is much less committed to certain doctrinal positions as being you know, necessary and somehow a non-negotiable. Like many Buddhists today, probably most Buddhists will regard the doctrine of rebirth to be basically non-negotiable. It's a dogma. It's not something that you can dispense with and realistically consider yourself a Buddhist. I'm often considered not to really be a Buddhist because I don't accept that doctrine. But that, I think, is somehow uh, uh, failing to acknowledge the particular style of teaching, uh, the methodology that the Buddha used in his, uh, in, in his Dhamma. Now, I think another thing that one finds when one gets back to the ground floor is um, a much more vivid sense of the historical situation in which the teachings were given. Um, to me, one of the greatest contrasts between the, the Pali Canon and the Agamas, and let's say the, uh, the Mahayana Sutras, is in the Mahayana Sutras you have no sense whatsoever of these teachings being given in an historical setting. Uh, they're usually they're given in Vulture's Peak, um, which is utilized, I think, purely as a kind of rhetoric device. There's no sense um, of uh, Rajgir, uh, where, near where Vulture's Peak is, as being, um, as being a place where human beings might exist. The, the Mahayana Sutras tend to be delivered in a, in a kind of quasi-mythical, uh, magical kind of environment. What is striking about the Pali materials is that um, there are many, many, many little instances and, uh, and, and a paragraph here, a paragraph there, an episode, that when you put those instances and episodes and details together are um, extraordinarily coherent in terms of an historical narrative and description of a particular time and place in India. And this is very remarkable. Again, it's not much emphasized in traditional Buddhist teaching, even in the Theravada school. But this, I think, is, has been for me in the last years um, one of the extraordinary things that I've discovered, I think, um, about the Pali materials is the uh, consistency of historical detail both in terms of the descriptions of the characters, sometimes very minor characters, um, whenever they occur, 
even if they only occur half a dozen times in the whole canon, they are depicted consistently. And Queen Malika, the first, the first wife of King Persenody, is, is depicted consistently. She's not an important figure, really. Uh, but, nonetheless, um, she comes across as a, as a real person, with a character, with a personality. But you won't find anything of that sort in uh, any of the later sutras of the Mahayana. You'll get figures like Vimalakirti, who, you know, is sort of an inspirational way, in, in, in a way, but really just a kind of a cipher of all the good Mahayana bodhisattva virtues. He doesn't have any kind of real... You can't, can't really imagine meeting Vimalakirti on the street. Very difficult. Whereas you can imagine meeting Queen Malika or King Persenady uh, or any of these guys. So what that means is that we find, uh, and again this is an ongoing thing, I mean recent scholarship is, is, is more and more getting clear about the sort of world the Buddha lived in. In, in, in quite a concrete way. And so you begin to see more and more uh, the context within which the Buddha taught, the kind of person the Buddha was, uh, the sort of um, interactions he continuously had with his family, with his, his benefactors, uh, with his monks. Um, you get a more and more fleshed out sense of a human person. This, I think, by and large, has been forgotten within most Buddhist uh, traditions today. Instead, the Buddha is rather an impossibly perfect figure with all of these weird attributes. And he, you have the sense that after he attained awakening, he just went around this part of India giving these brilliant talks, monks, nuns, lay people, hanging on his every word, and then one day he dies in Kushinagar between two sal trees. The story is far, far more complex and also far more human and tragic than one might expect. So I find that in being able to locate these teachings within that sort of um, more historical setting, we hear a more secular voice. A more secular voice. And I'm going to use that word in both senses, both the literal sense, meaning uh, seculum in Latin, which means this age or this time. In other words, one gets a keener sense of the Buddha's time and place, his seculum, his world, and the, and the constraints and the challenges that that constantly posed to him. But also secular in the sense of non-religious. When you try to um, imagine what it would have been like to be part of the Buddha's Sangha, let's say, as a monk or a nun, or even a lay person, lay man or woman, you don't have a sense that there's a lot of behavior going on there that we would now immediately recognize as religious. If you were dropped in from outer space and, and, and propelled back to 5th century BC in India, I don't think you would have immediately said, oh, these are a bunch of religious people. Uh, they would, in fact, there were similar groups of different persuasions throughout North India at that period, some of which were quite explicitly uh, materialistic, 
They didn't believe in the law of karma. Um, some very, very different philosophical schools and re- religious groupings, all of whom would have looked exactly the same. They would have been dressed in the same kind of rags. Uh, they probably would have been shaven head-headed. Um, they would have been part of a, a kind of countercultural communities uh, of people who were dedicated to a quest for understanding, for truth, to wisdom, following different approaches. All of whom would have been, in one sense or another, um, in reaction against a Brahmanic orthodoxy. In other words, the, um, the, the priesthood, which claimed an authority that went back to the Vedas, and more recently was enshrined in the text called the Upanishads, or the Vedanta. So you have, this, uh, you have to see the Buddha as part of this counter-religious movement. Because if you did, from outer space, pop back to 5th century BC India, you probably would have recognized the Brahmins as doing religious stuff. They performed sacrifices, they, uh, they recited hymns, they uh, recited mantras, uh, they had gurus. Um, that's much more what we would think of as religious. And Buddhism became more and more like that over time. But in the first instance, it was a counter-religious movement. It was perhaps the beginning of what the Buddha, what we might think of as a reformation, perhaps even more radical than a reformation, something that wanted to actually start again. You see, the the other thing um, we know now from historical studies is that the Buddha was born into a period of extraordinary turmoil and change at every level of Indian society. The Gangetic Basin was at the Buddha's time sufficiently um, developed agriculturally to, have, to be able to produce a surplus. In other words, people were not just living a sustenance existence, that they just produced enough each year in order to survive. There was sufficient surplus. As soon as you have an economic surplus, then you can uh, begin to finance people to do what would be considered non-productive labour. Now what this generated um, or made possible in the Gangetic Basin at that time was two things. First, it provided the possibility of maintaining a standing army which was the prerequisite for the beginning of monarchy and subsequently empire. And secondly, it provided for um, uh, men and women Um, to drop out of agricultural labour and devote themselves to what we probably nowadays call something like the life of the mind, a quest for learning, uh, for understanding, for wisdom, to answering the real questions that life proposes. And they were able to do that because they were able to beg um, arms, in other words, were able to survive off the surplus that was produced by the economy. So the Buddha was born at a time when the the society was being transformed from um, relatively small tribal groups, clans, confederacies, 
of um, villages, often governed by a, a council of elders. It was a form of oligarchy, republican oligarchy. There were no kings. There were Raja, but Raja just means like headman or noble or a member of the ruling class, really. There were no Maharajas, which we, we, we would call kings, until around the Buddha's time. And there were also no cities or large townships, urban dwellings, until around the Buddha's time. So the Buddha's time was the time when, when uh, kings emerged, uh, the idea of monarchy, um, the, uh, um, the, 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 the rapid expansion of monarchic power through armed force, which incorporated lots of these territories which were previously small republics into these grand monarchies. There were two at the time. There was Kursala to the north of the Ganges and Magadha to the south. And these were the two primary centres where the Buddha worked. Um, his main communities were always found within about half a mile of a major urban concentration, either at the, 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 the bamboo grove outside Rajgir or the Jetas grove outside Savati and the Mahavan outside Vaishali. So again, we can see just in the way, places where the Buddha taught that he was dependent upon this newfound wealth and he was also dependent upon the security that was afforded by kings. So he could establish these relatively safe and uh, well-funded bases. Now all of this um, uh, makes one much more aware of the Dhamma being taught within a particular occasion, a particular situation, uh, very often to the emerging uh, mercantile classes and those who are able to, uh, to, to leave the responsibilities of the world. But whether that was an, act, uh, an over form of behavior we would call religious, I would question. I think in some ways uh, these early communities would have been quite similar to the communities around Epicurus in Athens, uh, who was about a century after the Buddha. Uh, uh, the Stoics, the Pythagoreans, um, again, groups of, of usually men, but with women involved as well, um, who would be pursuing, basically, the questions of what does it mean to lead a good life? Not necessarily um, in, engaging in activities that we would now consider to be devotional, or religious, or concerned with the preservation of certain revealed truths. That came along a lot later. Now, um, we don't have much time left, and I'd like to go to a text that I'm, I'm sure many of you are familiar with. It's the first text in this collection. It's the Kalama Sutta. And on the background of what I've just said... I think the Kalama Sutta is very revealing because I feel it's a kind of a confirmation um, of precisely uh, that kind of world, that kind of secular in which the Buddha was working. Um, so it starts by the Kalamas, and again, this emphasizes the fact that 
here is a teaching that is dialogical. Um, a question is posed and the Buddha gives a response. And the Kalama people say, there are, Lord, and again, this use of the word Lord, I, I've often just tr- translate, I've just copied what the, is found in Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation. Um, at some point I plan to translate these texts um, in my own voice. But to do that I need a lot of time and a better grasp of Pali. So, you see, the very word Lord is already very suggestive of, re- of religiosity. The word is Bhagawat, um, which was just a common name used at that time for a respected teacher. Um, the, word, the, the even worse translation is the Blessed One. Um, the Blessed One, which I don't think is implied at all in the word Bhagawat. Bhagawat, Bhagawan is Sir, respectful. We don't really have an equivalent word. Lord is better than than the blessed one, but only just. And of course it has inevitable Christian resonances. The Lord Jesus Christ. And so on and so forth. So even in little details like that, we're actually, there's a subtext, a religious subtext that's being communicated just in the choice of the translator's terms. It's very problematic, I think. And since most of these texts are translated, or many of these texts are translated into English by people who do seem to assume that Buddha Buddhism is a kind of devotional religion of some kind, then that sort of devotional language uh, colors uh, the text itself. So there are Bhagawan, some ascetics and Brahmins who come to Kesaputta, which is the town where the Kalamas live. It's a, it's a village in, in Kursala somewhere. They explain and elucidate their own doctrines, but disparage, debunk, revile and vilify the doctrines of others. But then some other ascetics and Brahmins come to Kesaputta, and they too explain and elucidate their own doctrines, but disparage, debunk, revile and vilify the doctrines of others. For us there is perplexity and doubt as to which of these good ascetics speak the truth and which falsehood. Now, this text, uh, you know, that very question, of course, could just as easily be asked today. And it could be asked, for example, in relation to all the different forms of Buddhism. You know, I go to my local Buddhist centre in Sydney, and then we get a teacher from this tradition who says one thing, and we get another fellow from another tradition who says something else. Who do we believe? I think probably we've all asked this question ourselves. Now, again, what is interesting about the Kalama Sutta is that until um, quite recently, it was a text that was completely ignored. It was not an important text in any of the Buddhist orthodoxies. It was buried away in the Anguttara Nikaya, which is Anguttara, you know, section 3. I mean, tucked away in a collection of suttas which, in some respects, I think were just um, a way of collating texts that were delivered according to numbers. In other words, the, the, the twos, the threes, the fours, the fives, the sixes. Why this is included amongst the threes, I don't know. But it was hidden away. And um, it's, it's, I'm not aware of any um, traditional Buddhist... Um, Orthodox tradition that would quote it. It was, it was not even. It was. It would have been translated into Chinese, I think, 
but it wasn't translated into Tibetan for sure. It's not a text that was important uh, in any Buddhist orthodoxy in the past. But when, it was only when I think some British academics discovered it, is they went, wow. And they called it, I remember in one of the first translations, the Buddha's Charter of Free Inquiry. <laughs> Which in a sense it is. But what, it, again, I think is significant is that um, it then became, it, it sort of jumped off the page for a modern Westerner looking for some insights in Buddhism. They singled out this text. And it gets quoted all the time now. And this, I think, is again indicative of how canons are formed. Um, one of the accusations I sometimes get thrown at me is that, oh, you just pick the pieces you like from the canon and you ignore the stuff that you don't like. You just cherry pick, which is true. But then it's always been true. Every Buddhist orthodoxy is the result of cherry picking. There's no way, it's simply not possible for... Um, any school or any great sort of Buddhist thinker to be able to give equal value to every single passage in the entire canon. It's not possible. There's too much stuff. Inevitably, because these teachings are not, uh, as it were, trying to sort of describe some objective reality and thereby have value therein. But because these teachings are given to speak to the condition of particular people at particular times, inevitably, just as the Chinese selected, let's say, the Lotus Sutra, and the Tibetans selected the Prajnaparamita, for example, you, they do that because these are the texts that speak to them. These are the texts that make you go, oh wow, now that's really helpful. And that, I don't think that's remotely problematic. I can't see how it could be otherwise. And also, of course, it, um, it means that the tradition grows. That the tradition is not about preserving something, which is so often how it's communicated. You know, the foundation for the preservation of something or other. You only preserve things that are already dead. <laughs> like plums and apples. You preserve them. And the idea is that tr the tradition has never been anything other than what you get now. And your task as a good student is to uh, in internalize it, to understand it, and then in such a way that you can transmit it unchanged to the next generation. But that's a very dead approach. A living approach means that you respond to the texts that are contained within the uh, canonical uh, bodies held by these traditions in such a way that you, that you, you learn from those teachings that actually make a difference in your own life. And they will then become canonical. And this explains why there is such a huge variety of canonical, uh, of canons uh, within Buddhism. They're all different. All different organizations and selections of uh, primary materials. And then the Buddha replies to the Kalamas. It is fitting for you to be perplexed, O Kalamas. It is fitting for you to be in doubt. Do not go by oral traditions, by lineage of teaching, 
by hearsay, by a collection of discourses. Scriptures is an incorrect translation because it means something written. There was nothing written. So it must be discourses. By the acceptance of a view after pondering it, by the seeming competence of the speaker, or because you think, this monk is our teacher, this ascetic is our teacher. Now, of course, I think for many of us who have been, had anything to do, say, with the Tibetan tradition, that would be an extremely important point. You believe it because your guru said it, whereas the Buddha is saying the complete opposite. But when you know for yourselves these things are blamable, these things are censured by the wise, these things, if undertaken and practiced, lead to harm and suffering, then you should abandon them. When you know for yourselves these things are wholesome, are blameless, praised by the wise, these things, if undertaken and practiced, lead to welfare and happiness, then you should engage in them. I mean, this is a very, a very precise um, statement of a pragmatic position. In other words, what is to be accepted is what works, what actually makes a difference in, in, the, in the quality of your own life. Not because it's some revered truth handed down by an oral tradition or a lineage or a bunch of texts or by logical reasoning or by uh, the, the, the seeming competence of the teacher, the, the, the charisma of the teacher, we might say today. Kalamas, a person who is greedy, hating and deluded, overpowered by greed, hatred and delusion, his thoughts controlled by them, will destroy life, take what is not given, engage in sexual misconduct and tell lies. And he will prompt others likewise to do the same. Will that conduce to his harm and suffering for a long time? Yes, Lord. So again, here we have, <clears throat> in a sense, the foundation for um, a moral system. Uh, the, the primary moral ideas. Uh, greed, hatred and delusion being, as it were, the, the source of suffering if and when they're acted upon. And they lead to taking life, stealing, sexual misconduct and telling lies. Then Kalamas, that noble disciple, devoid of covetousness, devoid of ill will, unconfused, Clearly comprehending, ever mindful, that's clearly comprehending is uh, sampajanya, or fully aware, ever mindful with sati, who dwells pervading one quarter with a mind imbued with loving kindness, another with compassion, altruistic joy, equanimity, likewise the second quarter, the third, and the fourth. All right. When Kalamas, this noble disciple, has made his mind free of enmity, etc., he wins four assurances in this very life. Now, this is again this expression in this very life is uh, likewise uh, again very much um, an emphasis on experiencing for yourself, knowing for yourself, uh, here and now. It's not a teaching in which. You do these things because of the promise of some reward after death. And in fact, we'll just read the first two assurances. The second two are a little bit obscure. 
The first assurance is this. If there is another world, and if, and if good and bad deeds bear fruit and yield results, it is possible that with the breakup of the body after death, I shall arise in a good destination in a heavenly world. The second assurance is this. If there is no other world, and if good and bad deeds do not bear fruit and yield results, still, right here, in this very life, I live happily, free of enmity and ill will. As far as I'm aware, this is the only place in the canon where the Buddha explicitly suggests that there may not be another world after death. That there may not be a law of karma that will determine the outcome of a future life. If there is, then this is, uh, following these kinds of practices will be the best way to prepare for that future life. And if there is no future life, then to follow these practices and these instructions will be the most appropriate and fulfilling thing you can do here and now. Either way. In other words, the whole metaphysics of um, karma and rebirth is irrelevant. What matters is how you live now. Uh, how you actually transform your own thoughts, your thinking, your feelings, how you act, how you behave, and how you witness and experience the results of those behaviors right now in this world. And this, I think, is a, a very explicit affirmation of a, a secular approach. And that's why... I feel that this text, the Kalama Sutta, is really the kind of the, the starting point. It's why I put it at the very beginning of this collection. Is because it is the most uh, clear uh, uh, presentation of uh, the Dhamma in uh, an utterly secular vein. And that's where we'll stop for today. And, of course, we'll have... Um, discussion for another hour this afternoon and I, again I'd encourage you to, to read these texts um, I mean I've read this text dozens if not hundreds of times I'm sure some of you too have as well but what is remarkable about a classical text of this order is that it bears repeated reading um, I remember I was very struck by this when I was first studying in Dharamsala um, Geshe Dagi always used to say yeah, don't read these texts as though you're reading a magazine don't think that once you've read it once you can put it on your bookshelf uh, these, the, 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 these kind of texts um, reveal more and more meaning the more you think about them the more you reread them the more you reflect on them uh, the more you contemplate them and of course the more you actually apply them in your actual life that's what makes the real difference. So that when you come back to them, let's say a few months later, you find yet something else. Something that you hadn't noticed before. Perhaps because you hadn't, in a sense, done something in your own practice that enables you to see it. So I would suggest that um, uh, 
to maybe go over this text in the course of today to reflect upon it and just to sit with it not to get into a kind of you know, intense kind of analytical speculation but just to sit with it to sit with those ideas or to sit with a line or a, a passage that particularly strikes you and particularly passages that somehow challenge you Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.